You're listening to Asbury University's Chapel Podcast, recorded live from our campus in Wilmore, Kentucky. Asbury's Chapel Service hosts speakers from around the world to inspire academic excellence and spiritual vitality. We hope you enjoy today's message. It's a gift to be with you today. Uh, Not only because it's a gift to be with such a bright and beautiful community, but because where I live, in Colorado, this time, whoop, there's some Coloradans here. Um, this time, last Wednesday, it was negative 12 degrees Fahrenheit. And this, this is just a lot more comfortable right now. In fact, we had about a foot and a half of snow on the ground this time last Wednesday, and my five-year-old daughter started singing Christmas carols. <laughs> There's some Christmas fans in the room, I can tell. I'm also delighted to have been invited to speak about something as juicy and wonderful and unruly and delicious as sex and sexuality. Ow! But really, I'm here to talk with you this morning about one of the most powerful and radical gifts that God has ever given to you, has ever given to me. This gift can be beautiful and it can be destructive. Like most of God's gifts, it requires God's wisdom, but it's also the very place that we meet God most fully. This is the gift of our bodies and of sex and of sexuality. And before we really get started, I want us to climb out of the idea that when we're talking about sexuality, we're just talking about genital sex or sexual intercourse. I know that's often what we think when we hear the word sexuality. But I believe, and I've written and thought a lot about the fact that our sexuality is more than that. It's the energy within us that pushes us and pulls us and insists, no matter what our minds or our emotions say, that we are made for connection. That we were not meant to be lonely or alone, whether single or married, celibate or sexually active, and that we are made to be known and to know in our bodies. But before I get any farther, it's important that we turn to our foundation and our place of wisdom, Scripture. We have so many places to turn when it comes to understanding our our bodies and our sexuality, don't we? There are so many things that that I just do not suggest that you Google, (laughs) although I'm sure many of you have. There are so many places on social media to go if you want to ask a question or see something about our bodies, something that most likely will have been heavily edited. But when it comes to wisdom, to living a life of holiness and wholeness, whether it's in our minds, in our emotions, or in our relationships, the place that I find most reliable, most honest and life-giving is the ground of the Word of God. So let's stand, if you're able, as you hear read both the New and Old Testament readings for today. Therefore, I urge you, 
Brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Romans 12, 1 through 2, the word of the Lord. And a reading from the Old Testament. And after the whole nation had been circumcised, they remained where they were in camp until they were healed. Then the Lord said to Joshua, today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. So the place has been called Gilgal to this day. On the evening of the 14th day of the month, while camped at Gilgal on the plains of Jericho, the Israelites celebrated the Passover. The day after the Passover, that very day, they ate some of the produce of the land, unleavened bread and roasted grain. The manna stopped the day after they ate this food from the land, and there was no longer any manna for the Israelites, but that year they ate the produce of Canaan. Now when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, are you for us or for our enemies? Neither, he replied, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, what message does my Lord have for his servant? The commander of the Lord's army replied, take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Paul's impassioned plea in the first passage, the letter to the church in Rome, may be familiar to us. You've probably heard more than one sermon on verse 2, do not be conformed to this world, renew your minds. We know how to do this. There are bookshelves full of how-tos on study, renewal, the battlefield of the mind. But there is something in Paul's words that precedes the renewing of our minds, something that we rarely talk or think about, something we tend to avoid because of the tension it creates within us. We are to be transformed first by presenting our bodies to God. The word there is soma, a very clear indication that this isn't just a pretty metaphor. Paul means our bodies the actual stuff of our lives. Paul also says that presenting our bodies as living sacrifices is our act of spiritual worship, that what we do with our bodies, how and whether we present them to God, really present them, is something that is spiritual as well as physical. In fact, the King James Version translates that phrase as reasonable service. It says something, doesn't it, the, that the more modern translations move as far away from the embodied act of sacrifice as possible by calling it spiritual worship. We're not used to this. 
We're not used to believing that our bodies really matter, that our physical selves are, as, are an important part of the work of the salvation of Christ. Oh, we're used to being told that our bodies are temples, so we should really care about what we're putting in them. This usually leads to bad dieting, body shaming, and a warped view of the goodness of our bodies. We're used to being told accurately that sexual sin is a sin against our, your own body and that we should run as far away from it as possible, like in 1 Corinthians 6.18. I'm also sure you've heard someone at some point refer to their body as temporary or an earth suit, one of my personal favorites, neither of which are a biblical understanding of the body at all but they come from our hope in the heaven to come, our resignation to the physical struggles of the here and now. And we're used to being told that our bodies are problematic, unruly, full of competing desires, and actually get in the way of our relationship with God. I mean, how easy is it to pray when you're sitting next to the guy or the girl that you're attracted to? For most of the history of the church, our physical bodies have been viewed as enemies of spiritual growth and redemption. We've confused the flesh with our physical selves and lost an entire part of ourselves when it comes to our relationship with God. But as scholar Dallas Willard writes, if our physical bodies are beyond redemption, spiritual formation really becomes impossible. That's a strong word, right? <laughs> impossible. The church, though, has had a real problem figuring out what to do with their bodies. For the most part, it either relates to bodies as being animal, purely urges to be controlled, or angel, meant to be without any urges, impulses, or desires. In the late 1970s and the early 1980s, before most of you were born, a major shift happened in the Catholic Church. The Pope at the time, Pope John Paul II, began a series of 129 lectures called The Theology of the Body. In many ways, it rocked the Catholic Church, shook it back to a biblical understanding of the body. One of John Paul's key points was this. The body, in fact, and only the body, is capable of making visible what is invisible, the spiritual and the divine. It has been created to transfer into the visible reality of the world the mystery hidden from eternity in God and thus to be a sign of it. That's pretty emphatic and pretty radical. It's also deeply biblical. Our bodies are not an afterthought. They aren't an inconvenience. We need to begin to embrace our bodies. Moving into this space of embracing our bodies, of living as if they matter, of choosing to feel the anxiety of listening to our emotions, needs, and desires as they come to us in physical form requires risk. It's a kind of sacrifice to step into this place, an act of trust that God may, indeed, be interested not in controlling us, 
but redeeming us, all of us. That's tough though, isn't it? In addition to being taught to fear our bodies, many of us have experienced abuse or shaming in our bodies. We've been told that they're the wrong shape or size, that our desires are wrong, that we're only good when we're punishing our bodies or our bodies are being used for others. It's easy to say that our bodies are good, but so much harder to wrestle with that goodness, especially when it comes to sex and sexuality. I've been a practicing spiritual director for nearly 15 years and a trainer and supervisor of spiritual directors for nearly 10, which is a nice way of saying I should have known better in the story I'm about to tell you. Because sexuality is something really important for spiritual directors to think about, to know about, to wrestle with, just as it is for all of us. When I train directors on this topic, I ask them to write out their sexual stories, to wrestle with what they've experienced about their bodies, what messages and stories they've been told or told themselves, and consider how that makes a difference to how they think about God and about the people around them. And I ask them to touch each other. No, not that way. <laughs> I don't ask them to touch each other intimately, although to some of them it actually feels that way. I ask them to find a partner, to hold hands, to close their eyes, and to tell each other about their days using only touch. Think about that for a minute. We're so used to communicating with words, with texts, with emojis and avatars, that we're almost chronically touch-starved. Our screens keep us apart from one another and our fear of our bodies keep us farther. So I'd like you to close your eyes for a minute. I'm not asking you to touch each other. <laughs> but really, close your eyes for a minute. Think about, feel, what talking about your day, either today or yesterday, with just touch might be like. You might even want to feel it on your own hand. I'll wait. That was only about 10 seconds, but it feels kind of vulnerable, doesn't it? And kind of powerful. If you're anything like the 90% of the people I work with, you felt a little tingly, a little crazy. You might have laughed a little or blushed, which is pretty normal when we're engaging our bodies in conversation, even when we're imagining engaging our bodies in conversation. Actually being awake to the power and goodness that God put in them, that Jesus declared good when he became flesh and dwelt among us. What I didn't do today, and what I forgot to do in that class a number of years ago, was to tell you that this exercise is optional. Usually I told my students that they had permission to opt out, because statistically speaking, in classrooms I teach in and in this very room, there are many, too many of you who have experienced sexual and physical abuse 
for whom the messages of touch and the beauty of your sexuality has been misused. I forgot to do it, and I want to say that I realized my mistake almost as soon as the exercise began. But I didn't. There were two students across the classroom from me, and they sat frozen, only touching in their pinky fingers. They didn't move, and they didn't participate. A man and a woman. They didn't want to. They couldn't. Afterward, the woman found me in the hallway and told me how hurt and violated she'd felt by the assignment. She told me that she'd been sexually abused, and she called me to task for not giving her the dignity of choice. And she was right. I was embarrassed and repentant. I had hurt someone with the very thing I had hoped would bring healing. A few days later, this woman and I were at the same retreat. I was a director, and she was a participant. She came and found me again, and I was ready, so ready, to apologize and ask forgiveness once again. But she didn't come this time to tell me how wrong I was. She came to thank me. She came to thank me because that little exercise with touch, that small encounter with the goodness of her body and the goodness of intimacy with other bodies in safe, small ways, unlocked something big for her. She had been abused, yes, and that had left emotional scars. But what she discovered was that since that point, she had treated her body as the enemy, and she'd treated everyone else's bodies as the enemy, too. She didn't realize how much she'd cut herself off from the beauty and power and healing and hope all around her, all possible because of the redemption of Jesus and the reality of safe and holy touch. Which brings us back to our scriptures for today. When we meet Joshua in chapter 5, he and the people of God have just crossed over into the promised land for the very first time. They've been wandering in the wilderness following God for 40 years, and everyone who had left Egypt, except for Caleb and Joshua, was dead. They had lived with a certain type of food, manna, that appeared every day, and at this moment in the story, it had just stopped. They had lived with the manifest presence of God, the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire that had taught them how to walk and how to follow God and how to live as a community of God, a called out people. And all of that had just gone away. They were being invited into something new. They were being invited to live out with God in the promised land what they'd heard from him in the wilderness. This space is new, and it's scary. That's why the book of Joshua opens with God repeating himself over and over again, be strong and courageous, be strong and courageous, be strong and courageous. While in our Western modern context, we tend to think promised land and hear heaven, or easy, or Thanksgiving with mom and dad doing the laundry. That's not what Scripture is talking about when it talks about the land flowing with milk and honey. In the promised land, we are being asked to grow up. 
We're being asked to undertake good work, to fight important battles, to tend to creation. We're being asked, just as Paul repeats in Romans 12, to give our whole selves, body and mind, to the work of the kingdom of God here and now, to life, to growth with God, and to sanctification. Which is why what happens next with Joshua is so important and so relevant to what it means to both encounter and tend to our sexuality in our current context. It's a picture for us of what it means to step away from the simple solutions of rules or purity culture and move into a more meaningful, holy, and yes, risky encounter with God and others in our bodies. Before we get there, it's also important to remember that God has just renewed his covenant with his people, Israel. It's why we didn't skip the very painful, sorry for the men in the room, verse 8 of this passage, because in the act of circumcision, God is reminding his people, reminding you and me, that he will never leave us or forsake us. And that all this growing up, all this walking out of what it means to integrate our sexuality and our relationships with our bodies occurs on the ground of God's faithfulness to us first and his intended picture of covenant faithfulness for us and for each other. So here is Joshua, a new leader after Moses' death, leading a people of God into this new and holy future. And he looks up and sees a man standing with a drawn sword in his hand. I don't know about you, but at this point my stress hormones would have kicked in, and I would be either preparing to run away really fast or get my head chopped off. Joshua, though, does something totally different, something that has never been done up until this point in the story of God. Joshua makes a decision that is radical, terrifying, and so very good. He goes toward the very person that most of us would either avoid or attack. And he asks him a rather pointed but open and vulnerable question. Are you for us or for our enemies? This is why Joshua is a leader and why he's such an important picture for us of what it means to embrace our sexuality, not as automatically leading us away from God, nor as automatically leading us toward. And instead ask the question, are you for me or for my enemies? Most of us have been taught in one way or another that the best way to handle our sexuality is either to fight it or to run away from it. When we fight it, we avert our eyes, we take cold showers, we go for a long walk or to the gym. All of us, men and women, treat our bodily impulses for connection, for intimacy, for knowing and being known as something to be dominated and at worst, destroyed. When we run away from it, we pretend that we don't have the feelings. We numb with social media or food or Netflix. We avoid the places or people who call forth those responses in us. And we deaden our ability to connect with ourselves, with each other, and with God. 
And I'm here to tell you, this happens just as much with married folk as it does with singles, and sometimes more so. But Joshua's encounter with this dangerous-looking man gives us a template of what Jesus empowers us to do with our sexuality. Instead of assuming what's going on, Joshua trusts God enough and God's faithfulness and goodness to his people enough to risk encounter. He goes up to the man, not knowing what's going to happen, and engages in relationship. Instead of fighting or fleeing, which are the narratives of the wilderness, of our younger places, he is open to not being the one in control, to giving God the opportunity to speak through this powerful other. And doesn't our sexuality, our desire for connection, feel like a powerful other sometimes? Somehow a part of us, but also outside of us? And, doesn't, and he doesn't say, are you for us or against us? Which is what people often quote him as saying. He asks, are you for us or for our enemies? Which is actually a much clearer question. Are you here to remind us of God's support and protection and the goodness of what his plans for us are, for you in your body? Plans for knowing and being known, for experiencing the power of embodied delight, for pointing toward the goodness of the kingdom coming in full? Or are you here on behalf of our enemies, the ones who would teach us wrong things about God? Things like God just wants to use you, not love you. That God isn't in it for the long haul, but might leave you even after you've given your most intimate and vulnerable places to him. Lies like selfishness is the only way to get connection. And that if you aren't focused on relieving your own desires, you won't get them satisfied. These are the things the enemy of our soul says. They are also the stories the world teaches us about our bodies and our sexuality. But they are not God's good truth. Paul says that we're to present our bodies as living sacrifices, not our minds or our emotions or even our prayer life. Our bodies are the ground on which we encounter God, the very place that we're being asked to step up and ask the question, is this impulse, this desire, this holy sexual reality, is it for my good, God's good, or is it for my enemies? And when we do this, when we slow down enough, which I know is hard, hard work, we discover that we are in the presence of something more powerful than we knew. In Joshua's case, is the captain of the army of the Lord, one who will bring God's deliverance to him and to this ragtag bunch of former wilderness wanderers. For us, we find ourselves face to face with God's gift of our sexuality the force that urges, coerces, and forces us, frankly, out of our loneliness and isolation into the places of connection and holiness and being known. One of the strongest forces on this planet, especially if we look at how much advertisers use it to sell things. And it says to us, as it says to Joshua, whose name, by the way, in Hebrew, means God is salvation and which might sound more familiar to you if you were to hear it in that language, Yeshua, a prefigure of Jesus. It says to us and to Joshua, take off your shoes 
The place that you are standing is holy ground. Church, this is the truth of God. Your sexuality is holy and good. It is beautiful and powerful, and it is a place of encounter and fear, hope and holiness. It has the capacity to destroy and the capacity to heal. And if we are brave enough to step up to it, to surrender in trust to Jesus, and to actually ask questions of God first and of ourselves and of our own impulses, we find that we too are on holy ground. I'd like to end with a prayer, a prayer by St. Simeon, the new theologian who lived in the 400s, so he was not all that new. And I'd like you to stand if you're able and to put your hand over your heart, to feel your heartbeat, to feel the goodness of your very body, the blood flowing through your veins, the gift of your desires, the complicated reality of who you are, and receive this blessing. We awaken in Christ's body as Christ awakens our bodies. And my poor hand is Christ. He enters my foot and is infinitely me. I move my hand and wonderfully, my hand becomes Christ, becomes all of him. For God is indivisibly whole, seamless in his Godhood. I move my foot and at once he appears like a flash of lightning. Do my words seem blasphemous? Then open your heart to him and let yourself receive the one who is opening to you so deeply. For if we genuinely love him, we wake up inside Christ's body where all our body, all over every most hidden part of it is realized in joy as him, as he makes us utterly real and everything that is hurt, everything that seemed to us dark, harsh, shameful, maimed, ugly, irreparably damaged, is in him transformed and recognized as whole, as lovely and radiant in his life, we awaken as the beloved in every last part of our body. Amen.